Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Preparation, preparation, preparation. As far as the actual job's concerned, it's a piece of piss. A monkey could do it. That's what I thought of you. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tandler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a few days ago, I was in Roswell, New Mexico, and I went to the UFO Museum and Research Center, and now my eyes are wide fucking open. (laughs) Just tell me, I'm not going to be mad, are you a part of all this? Are you just assigned to keep an eye on me in case I start (laughs) learning too much? Fuck. (laughs) All this, 11 years? It's actually the APA has been in cahoots with the government. (laughs) Part of what we do is uh, anal probe unsuspecting, <laughs> unsuspecting citizens. It's kind of like the waterboard thing, you know? We're not exactly that ethical. About I do have things. this nightmare from Montana when we were there. Like, <laughs> Shh, just no, let it happen. <laughs> no, how was the museum? Like, uh, First of all, who runs that museum? Uh, one of the funders is actually one of the uh, lieutenants or retired army people that was pressured into saying it was just a weather balloon when it, <laughs> apparently, according to our, our story right now, was some sort of CIA top secret uh, nuclear detection device or something like that. But he provided some funding. I think Stanton Friedman, if that's if I'm right about that, big u- ufologist. There was a weird synchronicity, though. I was traveling there because we were on a road trip with my daughter, camping and stuff, and we were listening to podcasts on it. And one of the podcasts is called The Lovecraft Investigations, which yeah. had an r- unbelievable, outstanding first season. but And then the second season was very good, but kind of tailed off. Third season, is, fuck, is like dark. Um, <laughs> but in the second season, it's a Lovecraft thing. So it's not about UFOs. It's more about... The old ones. Yeah, the old ones. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like ex- like literally the old ones. But there was a UFO element. And what and the thing they're talking about is something that happened in 1980 in the, like, the forests of Great Britain. And so we're just listening to this. And then we get to Roswell. We're kind of on our way home at this point. And there is this big exhibit on that thing Uh, in roswell it was like we felt a little freaked out by it (laughs) (laughs) it was good Uh, you know like there's a lot of stuff that's interesting i didn't vet it you know so i don't know how much of it but there's a lot of shit the first part of the museum is devoted entirely to the roswell incident and there's a lot of stuff that i had kind of heard little bits of but that you get actually like primary materials there and it's kind of cool yeah nice Yeah. yeah 
Well, that's good. I I, I am all full in agreement for like uh, having that sense of wonder tickled. Like when you go to stuff like that, like as skeptical as I am. It does a good job with that. I, I want to say that if anybody wants to hear Tamler talk more about UFOs, become a patron uh, because you you and Bob put out your more, most recent Overton Windows episode about UFOs, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, settled yeah. settled the debate. Uh, expanded it. Allowed it to, to uh, breathe. And if it weren't for people <laughs> like you just trying to keep me under wraps, you know, maybe we'd get somewhere. This whole podcast is really about keeping you under wraps. <laughs> it's it's, it's you. a psyop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered, honestly, that they yeah, devote like this much. <laughs> uh, we should say what we're going to talk about yeah. on this episode. Uh, so in the main segment, we're doing a William James essay. Was the t- what was the title? It's of- the pluralistic universe. Uh, is the collected lectures, and we're doing uh, lecture le- six. Henri Bergson. Bergson and his critique of intellectualism. Yeah. yeah, we recorded that already. And Dave, you might be surprised. Tried to defend intellectualism. <laughs> well, I put on my smoking jacket and my pipe and uh, <laughs> talked about. You just want to go back to like when AJ Air. I kind of do. I kind of <laughs> want to smoke a pipe like while I'm lecturing. Um, but first, what are we going to talk about first in this segment? So this is an article. Actually, I, I found it at least via Neuroskeptic, but it's an article in Psych Science uh, called Are People Generous When the Financial Stakes Are High? By Ryan Dwyer, William Brady, Liz Dunn, and Mr. Ted himself, Chris Anderson. This is a, a single study where they did something that I have not seen done before. They got some rich donors to donate $10,000 to 200 people. The purpose of the experiment was to try to find out how pro-social people are with their donations. How unselfish are they going to be? Unselfish here meaning spending money on other people rather than themselves. They were required to spend all $10,000 within three months. So like Brewster's millions. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And they wanted to try a manipulation to see if, if reputational considerations were drivers of this kind of generosity. So half of the people were required to tweet about this, uh, the, the receiving of the money and what they were going to do with it. And the other half were told to not be public at all uh, about the money. They could tell their family and friends or whatever, but just not social media. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the findings were kind of surprising. Overall, there was no difference between the public and the private groups. And overall, $6,000 on average was spent on pro-social purchases. And here, this $6,000 is, is the pro-social in the broadest definition of the word. So you could, if we spent it on anybody, like if, if we spent it on our daughters or on our wives or, or whatever, um, on a more narrow definition of spending money on people outside of your household, um, people spent on average $2,000 of the $10,000. So like 22% of the money uh, was used on other people. And so it, and the, so part of the paper is arguing that like, oh, on the homo economicus, like the ultra self-interested rational view, like people should donate zero dollars to others, right. which I, is kind of just like a super straw man. But yeah. their main prediction that they pre-registered was that that there would be a difference between the private and public condition and there, and there wasn't. Well, that's 
whether there was or not is actually, I think, debatable. Um, but we can get yeah. to that. I do like the idea of raising the stakes. I think this is one of the problems with so much of these kinds of studies is you're talking about amounts that uh, there's no reason to think that whatever you do in this weird game you're playing for a few dollars or $10 or whatever. Right. $10 that, usually is like the, the highest amount in these, yeah. in many of these like economic games that are done in the lab. Right. Yeah. And so then it's like, I don't, I just don't buy that that reflects anything about your character or generosity in a broader kind of condition than that so this the idea of giving them like a shitload of money like giving them ten thousand dollars i think is a good one and when i first just looked at the results and it's like oh no different between public and private that's interesting also that they gave that much outside their household that's that's really it's almost encouraging it's like you feel good about human nature you dive into it and there's like two big problems I would say that I have with it. Number one, that how they recruited their um, candidates for this. So the idea was they pretended this was some mysterious experiment they were running. And yeah. so they talk about like how they uh, looked at low income countries and high income countries, but everyone was a TED watcher. Everybody that was part that could have received this money was someone that watches TED videos, which is or, or just follow the TED tweets or, or the follow TED the TED Twitter. Right. Yeah, that's a l relatively minor thing. But I think it does. It is a biased sample. Just somebody who's interested enough to follow TED on Twitter and is on Twitter um, like that is a thing with over 100 followers. I guess my bigger thing. Uh, issue and maybe I'm misguided about this. When they say there's no difference between public and private condition, they're talking about the number of like how much total that you spend, but I th uh, on others and not just yourself. <clears throat> but I think there's a huge difference between spending on family in the household versus uh, outside the household, right? Like, I don't consider it charity or not on myself if I buy Eliza something or I buy my wife something, right? Like, yeah. that's not, that's like practically spending it on myself. And when you look at total donations, so then, yes, there's no difference. But, but when you look at family in the household uh, percentage, it's 38% for the private uh, condition, 29% for the public condition. And when you look at the actual donations to local or national organizations, so not even friends, uh, stuff like that, then uh, you also see a big difference. 16% uh, in the public condition, 10% in the private for a local organization, and 8% versus 5% uh, for national organizations. So I think it's not a fair way of describing their results to say that there's no difference between public and private. But, but you, they ran, but when you run the statistics, like those aren't reliable differences, right? They, they have the p-values right there, right? These, these were not significant differences given the distribution in the sample. I can't, I can't speak to that, but uh, they look in terms of the percentages of how much they gave. Maybe it's, you know, that's just noise or whatever, but that is the, that is it, what you'd expect, I think. I wouldn't have expected a difference larger than what you see there, public and private, in the results. So maybe that's not significant, but there's no reason to think it's that means it's the same more than it means that it's even more different. 
Well, no, I think that's what it does mean. I mean, it is pretty basic statistics. Like, I, I think that maybe what you're getting when you get to the, those numbers is uh, less power to detect a real difference. But those numbers in of themselves, you can't, you can't, like, the statistics are really saying, like, you cannot tell if these two are actually any different from each other. But the, but why would you then assume then they're the same? That's the part that I don't buy. Like, you can't just assume the no uh, if the differences aren't significant because it could just as easily be a greater difference than those things. There's no reason to think that those numbers, this is just now pure statistics thing about arguing for the no, but that's not like uh, yeah, kosher as I understand it. You can't argue you can't prove the null. So that's, I mean, so in the results, they did what's called uh, equivalence testing. Um, that is a method to try to see if this is really the kind of pattern you'd expect if the null were true. And that that turns out to be like supported. Right? It does seem like these aren't different. If, yeah. But I mean, these, they are different. So, like, it doesn't seem like it's not different. It's just that you're, like... Well, yeah, like, the, the assume- numbers are different. Like, if it, if there was $1 difference, there would be a difference, too, right? Right, but you but would say, but that's not a reliable... percentage of difference di- that you might expect if the null wasn't true. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I know like, what you're saying, but that's just, like, making it too easy for you guys. Like, then, if you can just assume that the null is true because you can't prove that the null isn't true. No, right. Like, so on the hypothesis that there would be a difference, you can't, you can't, if you assume that, that, uh, there is no difference, these numbers would be consistent with that. Right. Like, so, I mean, it's, it's like, that's just how all, all hypothesis testing works. Right. You can't, it's true. You can't prove it. And that's what these equivalents, they did these exploratory equivalence tests to try to, to see whether the you can really provide any positive evidence that these are not different from each other. But yeah, like it's very like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just how hypothesis. I understand how like that works, but their hypothesis was not borne out. So if you say this provides uh, some bit of evidence against the hypothesis, or it certainly doesn't provide evidence for the hypothesis, hypothesis, Totally agree. I just don't buy that it uh, presents any kind of significant evidence against the hypothesis. Yeah, all you can say is is you can't reject the null. Like it's that's that's true. That's all you can really say. So the exploratory analyses that they didn't even uh, pre-register, where they're trying to find out uh, with these equivalence tests if these two aren't really different from each other, actually did yield that one in uh, the public condition people spent more on people in their household, but nothing else uh, emerged. The, I, I don't, here's what I don't get. Maybe like, I don't, we don't need to put this in, but it very clearly, when you look at the results, said that the percentage is higher for in the household, in the private, than the public by 9%. Um, in the, with in, inside households, 38 to 29%. Yeah. 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 I just don't see how that's like that. You can't just say actually an exploratory testing like, no, those are the actual numbers from the study. Yeah. But but all they're saying is that those numbers don't actually cross the threshold to be able to say that that's a true reliable difference. Like those numbers fall w- well within the range of numbers you'd expect to see if the null hypothesis is true. Sure. Right. But you can't say an exploratory <laughs> testing where there's, it's actually that you would spend more in uh, in your household, in the public, than the private, when the numbers just don't 
support that at all. Exploratory analysis suggests that participants in the public condition spent more on people in their household. Oh, yeah. Actually, that seems like they've said it wrong. I think they might have just said that wrong. I think that what they're saying is that the one result that does emerge is that that people in the private spend more in in their household. That might actually be a real like error in their reporting because they say exploratory analyses suggest that participants in the public conditions spent more on people in their household and that's just not what the table shows right that was the table point. shows the opposite yeah. yeah i think that's an error yeah yeah i think the new data colada handler <laughs> summers and David Pizarro from like the skeptic. We're like the X Files, you know. I'm the <laughs> like, This is the closest I've looked at numbers in a while. <laughs> I could tell. They've, I've been inspired. By the way, Data Colada, go donate to their uh, yeah. crowd uh, campaign. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So, so what they do report, I think they just said it wrong. Is the one difference that seemed to emerge is that people in the public condition give less to people in their own household than in the private condition. So this suggests that maybe something is going on there. Um, that was all it doesn't, yeah, 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 okay. I understand, you don't like to look at the numbers, but uh, <laughs> I like to get into the weeds. No, I thought you were saying that despite the non-significance that like the numbers are different. What would you say of the $10,000, what would you think people would spend on on people not, not in their immediate household? Yeah, I mean, like, it really depends. Like, $10,000 means a different thing to you and me than it means uh, Francesca Gino, than it means to, obviously, like, the billionaires of the world and then the really poor people of the world. So, like, if if people were like us, I would think that, yeah, it was like, oh, this is a huge windfall. Definitely, I'm going to spread the wealth a little bit. I would have my daughter move out and then give her a bunch of money so that I could count as giving outside of my household. So yeah, it seemed really, really generous. That's cute. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, you know, I, if it, it's, it, as Neuroskeptic said in his tweet, like, windfall money really is different. Yeah. Um, I don't think that means that these aren't results that are meaningful because people do get large chunks of money that they didn't expect. And there is no reason to think that people would be uh, that generous. But I do think that, like, if it's money... That's that's a total windfall. Spending money like helping like my closest relatives if they have any credit card debt. Like yeah. that's totally something I would do. Um, uh, but yeah, I think thirty percent is about right. That's about yeah. right. Yeah, I I, uh, I totally agree with that. And, that. and that's the last little quibble I would have with this is they talk, they compare this to inheritance. And I just don't think mm. it's the same. You don't look at inheritance like as, as the kind of yeah. windfall that this no, is. You're expecting you know? that shit your whole life, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like counting the days. Well, yeah. I, I don't know how this is going to translate to that, but I'm sure there's another study that's going to come and find actually the inheritance uh, spending <laughs> and windfall spending are, uh, you can't prove that this difference <laughs> is significant uh, <laughs> according to our study. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we'll be right back to talk about William James and uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> We're on point. We're on point today. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp. Have you ever reached a point in your life where you realize that something needs to change? Maybe you can call it a crossroads in your life and you're unsure which path to take. Maybe you're 
trying to decide on whether to make a change in your career or you realize that something about your relationship needs to change. Maybe it needs to end or maybe it needs to go to that next level. Whatever it is, therapy can help you map out your future. And I think that talking to a therapist, having them listen to you, offer you feedback or just being there for as somebody who can let you uh, communicate your thought processes out loud, that can really help you find your way forward. Times in my life like those are the times that I have myself turned to therapy and I found that it was extremely useful, even if it was only for that transitional period in my own life. So if you're thinking about this and you're thinking about uh, giving therapy a try, why don't you try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. As our listeners know, it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and work around your schedule. You can talk to a therapist in any mode or medium you desire. And all you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire. They'll match you with a licensed professional therapist. If you don't like that therapist, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So if you think you're at a crossroads like this in your life, let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BBW and you'll get 10% off of your first month. Once again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash B-B-W. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time, of course, where we like to thank all the people who get in touch with us, interact with us in all the various ways that you do on all the platforms, email, Reddit, Instagram, even Facebook. What the hell? If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas for David, at Tamler for me, or at Very Bad Wizards for both of us. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Mastodon. I'm kidding. I still don't know what that is, and I'm not even clear if it's real or if it was a dream. And finally, you can subscribe to us on Spotify and, of course, rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love getting those reviews, those five-star reviews especially. And we got a few last time. We're very appreciative of those. They're really important to help us connect with listeners who don't know about the show but might like it. Um, Did I say subscribe to us on Spotify? I think I did it that could help too. And if you would like to support us in even more tangible ways, those are all available on the support page at verybadwizards.com. You can buy some swag. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. And of course, you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. 
We've had a nice little bump on Patreon recently, and we're so grateful for that. For just $1 and up per episode, per main episode, so $2 a month, you get all ad-free episodes as well as seven volumes of David's Beats. He just put out uh, the seventh volume of Beats Without Rhymes, and it's great. For $2 and up, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, seven to eight years worth of various different kinds of things. Star Trek breakdowns. You get deep dives into David Lynch and Twin Peaks with me and Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington. You get early access to David and Paul's series Psych, if that comes back, which it probably will, um, as well as exclusive access to my new podcast miniseries with Robert Wright, Overton Window which is about the shifting range of what's considered acceptable or respectable discourse about a given topic. We choose a new topic each time. Our latest came out last week. We talked about the history and recent developments in the discourse around UFOs or UAPs. It's a really fun discussion. People seem to like it so far. You can also, I said exclusive, not quite. You can also access that if you join Bob Wright's Substack. Uh, And of course, At $2 and up per episode, you get access to our favorite podcast series that we've done, The Ambulators, where David and I break down every episode of Deadwood in detail. Deadwood, the best show of all time. And after a break, because of summer traveling, we're getting back to it. A recap of season two, episode eight, Childish Things, is coming next off week. At $5 and up per episode, you get access to our Brothers Karamazov series, Uh, another of our favorite audio series. And you can vote for the Patreon listener-selected episode, uh, which we run about every six months. It looks like we just had one that Blood Meridian took down Solaris and William James, but William James has the last laugh since we're talking about him first today. Uh, Probably Blood Meridian will be next time. And finally... At $10 and up per episode, you get to ask us questions in our monthly Ask Us Anything episodes, and we'll answer them in video form for you and audio form for all of our bonus tier listeners. So there's a lot going on. We hope you're enjoying those, the the Q&As. We really like them. And honestly, I couldn't be more grateful. Both of us could not be more grateful. We appreciate all of your support so much. Thank you. Let's get to this lecture, the sixth lecture in William James's 1909 work, A Pluralistic Universe. The lecture itself is called Bergson and his critique of... I was wondering if you were going to go for the French pronunciation. <laughs> Bergson. I don't know. Like You do it. You're better at accents. I'm, I'm going to do Henry Bergson. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Henri Bergson. Henri Bergson. Yeah, let's compromise. Uh, This was recommended to us by a longtime listener and someone like is very like minded in his view of philosophy and science. Farid and Anvari. He's like a good. He's a good in between between me and you. Like he's uh, he's probably closer to you, but he pushes you too. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, Yeah. yeah. He also nominated it for the listener-selected episode on Patreon, and I think it came in second place, but uh, the winner of that is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. We'll probably do that next, right? Yeah. It just was going to take us a little bit longer, I think, to, to prepare for that one. So Yeah. So you didn't win, Fareed. You didn't win, <laughs> but, you, but you did also, because yeah. we're talking about <laughs> 
Uh, this is, I, I think it's his last completed book. He published it. He gave these lectures, but then lectures, collected yeah. them and published them uh, a year before he died at 69. I didn't know that he died that young. He's no, no. kind of the goat. I mean, uh, he's like, how many people have made that much of, had that much of an influence on two fields entirely? Like, psycho he basically birthed American psychology. Yeah. And I feel like in their honest moments, both philosophers and psychologists want to get back to like more of what he was doing and feel like their fields have strayed a little bit. Certainly, like I believe that, but I think a lot of people at least sometimes believe that. I think particularly like his ability and willingness to to do big picture stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like so many psychologists quote William James. Clearly they're envying something about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so this lecture discusses the French philosopher uh, Henri Bergson and his criticisms <laughs> of the dominant strain of Western philosophy. James was like 20 years older, roughly, than Bergson, but he had been a longtime kind of admirer and champion of, of his work. He says he took a lot of inspiration from Bergson. Now, this essay, like, obviously, I'm going to love any kind of hardcore criticism of conceptual analysis, but the, the real, like, distinctive contribution for me was how James connects this critique of conceptual analysis with this other like old debate, two views, one that reality and life is in constant flux. That's the essence of reality is that it's constantly changing uh, versus the view that like actually everything is static, change is an illusion. The truly real things are static and un unchanging. So you had Heraclitus, uh, maybe the most prominent ancient Greek philosopher arguing for the flux view and Parmenides arguing that all change was an illusion. And then after Parmenides comes Plato, who, according to James, argued that the changeless entities were the more real, that particular and, and uh, constantly evolving things are just bastardized approximate versions of what their real unchanging essence is. Uh, as James uh, describes it, like the real essence of a thing, according to Plato, is the definition. And we get that definition through this method of conce uh, conceptual an analysis. Now, I'm actually agnostic about whether Plato truly believed this, uh, but he definitely presented the view in considerable depth. And James says, I think this is right, that at least in Western philosophy, this view of reality and also the methods of philosophy became dominant. And everybody played the game on those terms, on that turf. Whether you were an empiricist or a rationalist or an idealist or an absolutist, he sometimes says, you were all playing on those terms. And maybe you get a Nietzsche or a Berkson uh, later on, but they're late, they're outliers, and um, according to James, they're they're right. He doesn't talk about Nietzsche at all, but Bergson and that view is is right, and yeah, so I love that connection of the changing nature of reality with the critique of conceptual analysis. I never made that connection before, as at least as much as I remember. And, and, and uh, finally, last thing I'll say, the way he introduces this idea is through these kind of paradoxes or antimonies like Zeno's paradox that tie philosophers up in knots, but according to James are based on this, and, and Bergson are based on this misguided 
quote-unquote intellectualist uh, assumption about. So we'll get to that, but uh, I'm actually very curious. What did you think in general of this lecture? So I'm a huge fan of James, so I don't think I can read something that I won't admire of his. I haven't at least yet. Later, you know, later life James, when he starts getting a bit more toward this end of his, his shoe eschewing, con- like this rationality, maybe like, I don't know how to describe it, maybe a, a move toward the more uh, mystical view of, of life and existence is to me less satisfying than, than <clears throat> principles of psychology, James, you know, 1890 or whatever. I almost think that he's holding back his mysticism at this point in his life. There's a reading of this that I find to be fairly reasonable. There's a there's a different reading though that that leaves me wondering if he's like not just completely gone off his rocker. <clears throat> so that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> like oh, boy. The, some of the stuff that like what what exactly he means. Well, I have some questions about like what exactly he means in a couple places, but like in terms of my general impression, this is like heroin. This is philosophy <laughs> heroin for me. I know you were texting me as much. Like, I, I, just feed this to me, and I'll suck your dick. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Give me You'll more experience of the thickness of his reality. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So I love it. I think, like I said, I just love that aspect of it, this connection. I guess I believe, James, that this is Bergson who presented this position, but I, I, I'd like to learn right. a lot more about him and his work because yeah. if a listener has, like, here's a manageable chunk of Bergson that, that you should argue about. Um, <clears> preferably in its original French. Yes, all right, because we can both do that. Um, but so, okay, so here is like I'll just say a couple of big, like yeah. big questions that I have. <clears throat> One, well, the first isn't so big a question, but it it is to me. I'm curious who this enemy that he refers to as intellectualism is. Yeah, um, because it it seems to me that like it's more of a sentiment that he's attacking than than, um, or maybe he's lumping together a, a bunch of different ideas. Um, like what you described and calling those things intellectualism. But I, I wasn't sure because he never, he never really says what he means by intellectualism. So I did kind of look through the other lecture. Yeah, me too. Yeah, to he doesn't really mention it at all. Well, no, he does. Um, he does. Like I would say, especially in lecture five, here's a quote that I found from the fifth lecture that um, was a little more illuminating for me. Intellectualism has as its source in the faculty which gives our chief superiority to the brutes our power, namely of translating the crude flux of our merely feeling experience into conceptual order. An immediate experience as yet unnamed or classed is a mere that that we undergo, a thing that asks what am I? When we name it and class it, we say for the first time what it is and all these what's are abstract names or concepts. Uh, intellectualism in the vicious sense begins with Socrates and Plato. Ever since Socrates, we have been taught that reality consists of essences, not of appearances, and that the essence of things are known whenever we know their definitions. So first we identify the thing with a concept, then we identify the concept with a definition, and only then, inasmuch as the thing is what the definition expresses, are we sure of apprehending the real essence or the full truth about it. 
So that's one kind of definition of it that's kind of, at least as he thinks he's presenting it, neutral. The next sentence is, so far, no harm done. It's just when these concepts become tyrannies or, or that we can get ourselves bogged down in like something like Zeno's paradox, which just takes these concepts with have some kind of practical use f- for us in organizing our experience and mistakes it for the reality and then c- come up with logical contradictions. But that's the contradictions aren't in the world. The contradictions are just in our like essentially imperfect way of modeling experience with our concepts. I yeah, I guess like there are a few things that that I I think he maybe is slippery about in his use of this term cuz like I get on the one hand what he could be saying is um these specific views like that that defended by by Socrates or Aristotle um, that there exists these essences and that we once we define them, we get to know them. Like you can argue against that. But it does sound like he's mounting, the, like the use of that term sounds like he's mounting something broader, like a rejection of the use of reason for accessing external truth. And I don't know that that's what he's doing. Like I think it's a specific kind of, like a specific tradition within like using your intellect. Systematic, theor- theoretical, that side of reason. Yeah. Well, that's, but that's so much of what reason is. Like, even just like the use of concepts at all um, in anything. Like, it sounds like he's, he's trying, right? He's not even like you were saying that it's sort of an attack on conceptual analysis, but it's really an attack on concepts. Right? Yeah. Not even, not even just conceptual analysis. But, I mean, obviously, you need the, the former for the latter, but it's bigger than just like that particular methodology that modern analytic philosophy uses. It's like any reliance on concepts. And so at times I was like, well, is he railing against the use of math as in what Zeno's paradox is kind of showing that like when you start getting into infinitesimals, like you start in- entering paradoxes and it's, it's our desire to use even the most basic of logical uh, methods to describe the world? Or is it more like uh, the methodology that certain philosophers use? Or is it just in general? Like the, It's not that he has anything against concepts thought of properly when they're uh, understood as, as subordinate to the experience and not something that is, has a reality in and of itself. It's, it's, that's the thing. Uh, the whole assumption that underlies conceptual analysis is if we nail down this concept, we will have uh, figured out something real that, we, uh, that isn't available to just experiencing the thing. That's the thing that he's against. I think he thinks if you use concepts as a way of organizing your experience and as a way of making predictions in science and all of that, fine, just don't mistake that for reality. Because fundamentally, reality is this constant flux of immediate, pure experience. And concepts have to be, you know, they're, they're, they're the map rather than the, the reality itself. And philosophers are confusing the map with the thing that it... The territory. The territory, yeah. Yeah, like if, if what, what he was saying is um, every conceptual framework to describe reality is is simply a model like we're never you know we're only approximating the the truth 
uh, in as much as we can. Like that seems so reasonable. Like I think most scientists believe that. Like you know, whenever scientists come up with a model, like they they usually are like, well, yeah, like we all we're trying to do is is get better and better at predicting um, the way that this thing works, like that, whether or not we're ever describing the actual fundamental truth. Like, I, I don't think that's what he's doing. I actually don't think this is even that much of a direct critique. I think you could apply it to a critique of science and scientists and their methods. But I think this is more a critique of the way this uh, manifests itself in philosophy. And maybe we should talk about like Zeno's paradox and why he thinks something like that is a product of this misguided way so Zeno's paradox is this idea that if, you know, you have a race between Achilles and the tortoise, and if the tortoise gets a little bit of a head start, then Achilles can't pass the tortoise because every time Achilles gets to where the tortoise was, assuming that he's moving continuously, the tortoise will have moved a little bit in that time. And then if he just gets to the point point where the tortoise is now the uh the tortoise will have moved a little bit and so like achilles can't pass uh the tortoise because the tortoise will always be infinitesimally ahead um and yet we know from like experience that of course people can pass other people so like i think what he's saying is it's uh or what he's attributing to bergson is this idea that you can only tie yourself up in these kind of knots uh, that these uh, antinomies present, you can only do that if you are mistaking like your conceptual framework for understanding uh, experience as, as an actual real thing rather than just the reality of uh, one person passing another in a race. Right. So like motion, Zeno's paradoxes, like Zeno wanted to conclude that motion didn't exist. And he, so he thought. Right. Because of Z the paradox. Yeah. Yes. So, so uh, at least on this account of what Zeno believed, he yeah. was willing to bite the bullet in like the harshest of ways by saying like, well, like I would rather trust my thought experiment showing that motion is impossible. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think. I, like I disagree with you that this doesn't apply to to very naturally to extend toward uh, a, an attack on a particular view that scientists might have about what they're doing because of what it means to to quantify the world into discrete units. Um, but he doesn't go there in this essay. You're right. Yeah. So here's a question I have. So you found it like very enlightening that he was bringing together this view on the like immutability. Uh, and uh, that that debate between whether things are in flux, whether reality is is in flux, or whether the most real things are unchangeable and immutable. But why is it that he he says a few times that concepts are by their nature fixed? Mm -hmm. And that's what I could I could like I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Like why why isn't this simply solved by having the notion uh, that concepts are also changing or that I have the concept of changing. Like it's certainly or fluid, like, like that concept. Yeah. Like I think because I think he thinks this is essential to concepts, right? Like it, you can't have that. You can't have the idea that empathy means one thing it, like, or it's supposed to be bad that empathy in one study. Well, now I'm going to science means this. <laughs> and in another study, thank you. Means thank you for that. calling psychology science. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're welcome. Um, <laughs> the whole point of concepts is it gives us a way of talking about something, and if it can immediately just change overnight, not even overnight, but in like the next successive moment, then it no longer is of any use to us at that point. You know, empathy can't mean giddiness or horniness or else like what's its use to us having the concept at all. So like there is something about these concepts and the more the more definitely defined ones, the more precisely defined ones are going to be the most unchanging. Like this can have social political uh, aspects too, you know, like with something like marriage or what is a woman or like, but if it is, that's going to be uh, a fight and it's going to um, be one that is resisted at, at every level, both philosophically, scientifically, maybe politically as well. Right. I guess like I'm just confused that the, the, like there's nothing in a concept that says that you can't have the concept mean fluid, right? The concept fluid means fluid. And so so maybe what he but just fluid means doesn't is, change. Like fluid doesn't suddenly mean static. Right. But like, yeah, but like fluid is a concept that is exactly about change, right? So like it's not right, like the, the concept yeah. is 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 about change. So I, there are so many conceptual tools that we have to describe fluidity and change. That it seems weird to equate the very notion of concepts with like that inability to be changeable. I think he thinks that in practice, the problem is, so maybe you're right in some kind of ideal use of concepts would uh, achieve this perfect balance of flexibility. But in reality, they are, they end up um, distorting our view of the world often, not always. In fact, I think he thinks they're often extremely helpful and and potentially illuminating. But it's where we then uh, start to think, oh, this part of experience is devalued because it doesn't match the concept, which definitely happens in philosophy and science, um, that, that that does happen. And I think he thinks this is a symptom of this just fundamental mistrust of, I don't want to say lived experience, but what he <laughs> calls raw experience or pure perception that isn't, and here's where I think the mysticism comes out in this essay. Like, I think he thinks it's precisely when this experience isn't mediated by concepts that we can actually grasp the full truth of, of what's happening. Concepts will uh, maybe help us organize it in a way that we can wrap our heads around it at times, but it, it will also make us, it will turn us away ever so slightly, or in some cases drastically from the thing itself that we experience as like, you know, he's trying to overcorrect for what I think is a definitely real tendency in philosophy here to lionize the concepts um, at the expense of the experience and to think that the, the, the experience sh should be subordinate to the concept rather than vice versa. Right. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by Rocket Money. You know, uh, a couple of months ago, I said here 
that Rocket Money had found a subscription that I had signed up for that I really didn't realize that I still was paying for every month. And I was able to cancel it and saved that much money per year. That alone was worth it to me, the price of a subscription uh, to Rocket Money. But recently, Rocket Money alerted me to the fact that one of the services that I use was increasing its prices by a couple of bucks every month. And that made me sort of reassess whether or not this was a service that I wanted. And I hadn't gotten an email from that service. I had no idea that they had raised uh, the subscription. And now I'm not sure that I want it. But in a nutshell, one of the things that Rocket Money has done is lowered my anxiety about signing up for a subscription for free trials because I used to be very reluctant to try out something new for fear that I was going to forget and forget to cancel my subscription and end up paying money that I didn't want to pay. And Rocket Money has completely prevented that from happening. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that does that very thing. It finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, it monitors your spending, and it helps you lower your bills all in one place. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel subscriptions that you don't want with just the press of a button. So you don't have to call and wait on hold for a long time or trade emails with customer service that can be very annoying. Rocket Money will do all of that work for you. Rocket Money also, this is one of my favorite features, it lets you monitor all of your expenses in one place. It will recommend custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. It has over 3 million users and counting, and when they do the math, they find that Rocket Money customers have saved an average of $720 a year. So I think if you're like me, this is the kind of service that will pay for itself. If you'd like to try it out, go to rocketmoney.com slash VBW. Stop wasting your money on things you don't use. Cancel those unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way. Rocketmoney.com slash VBW. Once again, that's rocketmoney, R-O-C-K-E-T-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to Rocket Money for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So I think actually his critique goes way deeper than any uh, like particular reliance by philosophers, even though I know he's using that as an as example. And so just now in thinking about what he's saying, um, I, I think that he is uh, arguing against the practice of abstraction in general um, and our normal human use of it, like our use of concepts just in daily life. Because um, I think you're right. He thinks of it as a, as a way in which we make sense of the world so that we can navigate pragmatically. But I think that he thinks that the minute that we start acquiring concepts and abstracting from instances, that there is a mistake being made. Um, and that philosophy is like the, at least the philosophers that he's talking about, are the extreme version of that. But I think that he's, he's going down deep. So when he says, um, we of course need a stable scheme of concepts, stably related with one another, to lay hold of our experiences and to coordinate them with all. When an experience comes with sufficient saliency to stand out, we keep the thought of it for future use and store it in our conceptual system. And what does not of itself stand out, we learn to cut out. So the system grows completer, and new reality as it comes gets named after, and conceptually strung upon this or that element of it, which we have already established. The immutability of such an abstract system is its great practical merit. The same identical terms and relations in it can always be recovered and referred to. Chains itself is just such an unalterable concept. It's directly responding to what I was saying. Yeah. Um, so, you know... Uh, in his Principles of Psychology, James has this famous 
uh, people quote it all the time in psychology, where he describes the baby's sensory experience as a, he describes the baby's world as a blooming, buzzing confusion. Yeah. And he means by that, that because, you know, James being the empiricist that he is, he believes that you need exposure to, you know, you need to have actual experience to make sense of the world around you. And he believes that since the baby didn't have experience yet, that there were no categories, there were no concepts, there was, there were none of these reality crutches to to allow the baby to make sense of the world. So that was something like a, a more pure experience. But that as time goes on, the baby starts developing concepts. Mm-hmm. And so I think just in the way that the baby develops concepts is, as he says, is, is by finding like things. And when you find two things that are alike, you cut out the differences and now you have uh, a new concept and you use that to move along. It's directly relevant to, to the Borges, uh, Funes the Memorius, when mm-hmm. he talks about abstraction as ignoring differences, yeah. Um, right. So, so I think I mean, do you agree with this? Like that, I that I think the critique goes down to just like what it means to even human concepts that allow us. Like they're pragmatically very useful, and we probably couldn't live without them. But I think he's getting to this deep metaphysical point that, well, the only real true things is the stuff before that, like the stuff before we start. Yeah. Forcing things into groupings and abstracting away. So he says, we are so subject to the philosophical tradition, which treats logos or discursive thought generally as the sole avenue to truth. And then to fall back on raw, unverbalized life as as more of a revealer and to think of concepts as merely practical things, which Bergson calls them, comes very hard. It is putting off our proud maturity of mind and becoming again as foolish foolish little children in the eyes of reason. But difficult as such a revolution is, there is no other way, supporting your point, I believe, to the possession of reality. And I permit myself to hope that some of you may share my opinion after the next. So he's essentially saying, like, you need beginner's mind here, I think. Yeah. Like, concepts in a lot of uh like the buddhist practice concepts are the thing that you are trying to not bring to meditative experience you are just in search of the raw uh experience and that's like the mind when you're uh, a child or a baby and the world is blooming but budging it's kind of almost a like tragedy like a tragic in <laughs> right. that sense because it's but like that's, I think, where he he lands. So there's actually in uh, the appendix, <clears throat> he has a uh, uh, definition of pure, what he calls pure experience. Mm. He says, pure experience is the name which I, give, which I gave to the immediate <clears throat> flux of life, which furnishes the material to our later reflection with its conceptual categories. Only newborn babies or men in semi-coma from sleep, drugs, illnesses, or blows <laughs> may be assumed to have an experience pure in the literal sense of a that which is not yet any definite what, though ready to be all sorts of what's, full both of oneness and of manyness, but in respects that that don't appear, changing throughout, yet so confusedly that its phases interpenetrate, and no points either of distinction or of identity can be caught. Yeah. He says earlier, the intellect carves joints where there are none. And I think he thinks that's essential to like this kind of systematic, the way of abstracting from the uh, world that we do. Okay, so here's my other big question, because like yeah. I think I'm I'm fine with with him up and you know about the abstractions giving you less and less reality the more and more mm-hmm. you abstract. Do you know mm-hmm. by the way have you have you heard of the um, coastline paradox or the coastline problem? 
mm-hmm. uh, before. So it's this it's this very cool thing that if you try to measure the coastline, say like the coastline of England, you want to say how how long, how many miles is the coastline of England? Um, and you take a measurement, and the way that you do it, since the coastline is jagged, is you obviously have to like take some straight, you know, like straight lines and map them onto the coastline. And every time you right. use a straight line, say like a yardstick, you mm-hmm. are erasing some of the little jagged parts within that. Right. Um, but it happened at one point that two two surveys of the same coastline yielded such wildly different estimates that uh, they figured out that it's because they used like different sticks, different size lines. And it turns out that just the smaller the stick you use to abstract away that little distance, the mm-hmm. longer the coastline is going to be calculated to the point that infinitesimally small lines are going to yield infinitesimally large coastlines. So this is just to say that there is no true answer to how big is the coastline of England. It's like actually indeterminate, right? It's, there's, <laughs> right. There's, not, there's not an answer. And that's what I thought about abstraction. Like abstraction is that like choosing to put a straight line over the jagged edges because what you really want to know is how long it's going to take a fucking ship to sail around around England, right? Like right. So you're uh, purposefully ignoring something because it's going to work uh, because you don't need that level of information. And what James seems to be saying is like, yeah, that's all well and good. In fact, like I can probably build a theory of pragmat- pragmatism where I can call that truth with like a lowercase t. But if you really want to know what reality is, uh, just let let the experience sink in and don't use any straight lines for the jagged edges. Like, don't try to measure it. Don't try to control it. Don't try yeah. to just... Live every moment without abstract, yeah, yeah, without like noting the similarities and differences. So here's what what I was really left wondering, which is because like I fall, I buy that that like experience independent of of abstraction or concepts is going to be a very different thing and maybe closer to the pure. But why put any faith in that our experience is yielding anything that's true? Like why is it that that he seems to to value so highly our sensory experience, like independent that pure experience, independent of abstraction. Why not go full Kantian and say, well, like actually, the way that we acquire information about the world around us is already flawed and fucked up. So we shouldn't trust that as as yielding anything close to truth. So like maybe the truth, the external world, is just something completely unknowable. It's neither knowable through our sensory organs via like the pure experience that he's talking about, nor through the blood, sweat, and tears of conceptual analysis. It's it's almost like he's an idealist. But no, like, he's not because he, he's, he has a lot of separate arguments against Hegel and Kant and where he thinks they go wrong. But I, but I totally take your point that there is a, a faith in raw experience that you might wonder why is that justified and i think maybe this is at this point uh, the mystical assumption is that you know truth when you experience it in uh, a certain way and that's why he believes that you know that that this kind of experience can bring you knowledge i think that is kind of the, the buddhist answer to your question is I can't explain to you why uh, this is uh, giving you truth. This is illuminating because that would be to use concepts and I would 
be bastardizing what we're talking about. But I will say, like, just if you do do the thing, you will get more and more of a sense uh, the more you do it of what we're talking about. Um, but it's always this tension because you're always trying to sometimes in the kind of teaching process of any kind of mystical practice, you are using concepts and you're using concepts that heavily involve constant flux and change to get you to that point. It's not a satisfying answer to your question, but it is, I think, the answer that he gives is ultimately this is something that you have to do and uh, and open to if you're going to be convinced of its truth. You, I don't think there's a way to be antecedently convinced that raw experience is reliable. Right. It's interesting. Like I think, I think he must have particular antipathy toward philosophers who use concepts uh, in ways that are so useless, right? Because at least scientists are are using conceptual tools to to yeah. to yield some utility. But like there is a particular kind of uh, mental masturbation that. Um, yeah, like you know, take a Gettier problem. It's just yeah. I think he would say is like it's based on this fundamental confusion that there's this real thing, knowledge, and we have to be able to come up with these necessary and sufficient conditions. And maybe that's one of the more absurd examples, but that but you find that in uh, all the way through uh, analytic philosophy, especially in like the 20th century. The truth that you get from raw experience or, or pure experience. Um, isn't very useful. Like, it's not very practical, right? It depends, like, what you mean by practical. Uh, that's a good... I think he believes that it is a accurate, but also, like, morally better way of understanding uh, the world and weirdly intellectually honest way of uh, approaching reality. Yeah, I don't know if, like, you're going to need concepts if you're going to try to build the atom bomb <laughs> right right you need abstraction like it's yeah. yeah and there's an arrogance i think that like the the reification of concepts as like like yeah. discovery of ultimate truth is is arrogant and and potentially like lead to downfall you know it's interesting he uses as an example in here um the, the concepts of space and time, he says. Yeah. See, conceptually, they're separate. So, um, uh, but in reality, like, but in practice, they're not. Um, but, you know, now conceptually, we have the space-time, right? Like from mm -hmm. Einstein. And, and it is kind of true that if you got stuck on saying that it was a logical truth that space and time were independent of each other, um, you might not let the math take you where Einstein let the math take him and and conclude something that's wildly counterintuitive that space and time are the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, but James would say Einstein is a conceptual advance over what came before it because it, of its predictive and explanatory virtues, but it is still relying on, like, these discrete concepts when everything actually is completely fluid. You could probably get closer and closer to 
reality through an improvement of concepts, yeah. but you'll never be able to reach it and because that's your method of, of right. approaching it. And I think like, I, again, like I may, maybe I'm wrong, but I think most sensible say scientists believe that, like that they're not, that, that they're just right. Like getting like a bit closer and a bit more accurate, but not that they're touching ultimate reality. The difference is simply that they would say, yeah, but like, we're not going to get any closer to reality by just like, a blow to the head or whatever um that they would think that like the ultimate reality maybe is is so independent of the human mind i i think you're right he he's on dangerous ground if he's saying that through our concepts we're getting better at describing reality i think he just thinks there are better and worse ways of using concepts more or less distorting ways of using concepts yeah. but you're already taking a step into something that uh, can't succeed if if you do that. And I like I I like to believe that what he means by intellectualism is that the, the that deep belief that the concepts are yielding reality. Um, and like that's that arrogance to think that the concepts that we've come up with are connecting us to deeper reality. I have to read this quote. The only way in which to apprehend reality's thickness is to either either to experience it directly by being a part of reality oneself or to evoke it in imagination by sympathetically divining someone else's inner life. But what we thus immediately experience or concretely divine is very limited in duration, whereas abstractly we're able to conceive eternities. Yeah, as much as you might question why he trusts our sense experience, definitely could tr ask why he trusts imagining somebody else's subjective <laughs> yeah, experience. Right. Yeah, that was know? weird. Yeah, that was you could look at this, which I do, as also just a corrective, because there's definitely ways that philosophers and scientists do mistake the model for the, the real, do mistake the map for the territory, and that that gets them into uh, a lot of different, like just fundamentally misguided ways of approaching the, the subject, the phenomena, right? Yeah, like sure. that does happen. And when that happens... Often it's because we've made this mistake and we're just not paying attention enough to the raw experience. We've strayed away from that so that we can control and organize uh, and systematize what it is that we're trying to do. Yeah. So like probably the way, like this is probably too weak uh, for what James wants to say, but maybe experiencing the raw experience, trying to to get to that mode of like not not categorizing not abstracting not conceptualizing is just a good reminder that reality is independent of our concepts if you if you got to the point where you thought that thinking that, that all of these concepts were actually getting you in touch with reality this yeah. will remind you that like these are tools and these yeah. are ways. But I do think he's like you said he's making a slightly stronger claim. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll quote this here Talking about Bergson, he says, he thus inverts the traditional Platonic doctrine absolutely. Instead of intellectual knowledge being the profounder, he calls it the more superficial. Instead of it being the only adequate knowledge, it is grossly inadequate, and its only superiority is the practical one of enabling us to make shortcuts through experience and thereby to save time. The one thing it cannot do is reveal the nature of things, dive back into the flux 
itself, Bergson tells us, if you wish to know reality, that flux, which Platonism, in its strange belief that the only the immutable is excellent, has always spurned. So yes, it's a rejection of Platonism, or what he calls Platonism, but it's also that it, it, it's only giving us practical. That's the stronger claim. It's not getting ever so close to the wall. It's yeah. moving away from the wall. Um, but maybe has other practical uses. It does make me wonder how this, like whether his pragmatic theory of truth and this are consistent with each other or whether this was like a an, a step toward a different view of what truth is. I do think it is a step away from it or it's saying the pragmatism is subordinate to this. Whereas I think before maybe in the will to believe or something like that, the reality was defined by the practical. And here it's like, no, good pragmatic use of concepts can orient you in such a way that you'll be in a position to actually achieve some kind of real enlightened understanding of the nature of reality. But it's that does exist apart from the practical. In fact, the practical is should be guided towards getting us to this thing that transcends it. So I think it's actually, um, in some ways, it's not, it's it's not like it's still... It's transcendentalist. Yeah, it's <laughs> transcendentalist. But not in the Kantian uh, <laughs> no, annoying no. <laughs> way. No, but you know, he has, it's like the nicest I've heard somebody be to Kant in a while. Like when he says, like, at least Kant, at least Kant had the decency to place ultimate reality before experience. Like, uh, yeah. not like these other fucks. <laughs> and not pretend. Like, yeah. <laughs> again, he says Plato is. Right. But it's interesting, like, a quick sidebar, and then maybe we should wrap up, but Plato's actual views on like philosophy being this constant thing of two people you know it's not something you read in a book and learn right. it's something that you actually have to it's do yeah. it is is very much i think in line with the berkson view that this is a constantly evolving organic process plato is often put in contrast to process philosophy which yeah. is but i think plato is like a great example at least the plato that That's i like to imagine yeah. of someone who actually believes that the that the truth is evolving through these conversations that are const, that are continual and that's the philosophical life is never resting with thinking that you've like arrived at something but just to be having the conversation so yeah I, I think that's an, a, a fascinating aspect of Plato. Yeah, it's true. Like Plato does get get sort of uh, attributed a lot of the like the the Platonism. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was trying to think of any other word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a book that I was reading not too long ago about like the the emergence of of uh, the uh, science and the Enlightenment, and they they were saying like. Yeah, it was actually a platonic problem that people were unwilling to think of the world as moving. Like things that were moving were imperfect. And how could like God have created this perfect world and put it in motion? You know, like that was anathema to to uh, the Enlightenment yeah. people. But actually, maybe Plato was at least his view of philosophy was that it yeah. never stops. It's always uh, evolving and progressing. And when it stops that's when it's dead. And so like, I think there's a lot of consonants there with the James Bergson view, even though he really is associated with um, and probably responsible for, in a maybe unintended way, uh, kind of the opposite 
uh, trajectory yeah, and philosophy. I, I, I can already see it now, new from Oxford University Press, Tamler yeah. Summers. So why, why Plato is misunderstood. Why Plato is an anti-Platonist. Like <laughs> has, has anyone written that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I call it. Uh, <laughs> Dibs. <laughs> except that I, I don't want to have to read Greek. So. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, all right. Any other uh, favorite quotes? Uh, let me see what I have. The thickness one was my favorite. Thought that deals thus only with surfaces. It can name the thickness of reality, but it cannot fathom it. <laughs> its yeah. insufficiency here is essential and permanent, not <laughs> temporary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think that kind of sums it up right there. It's like your, your science can't, is, is thin. You know. There are more things in what is the Shakespeare quote? In heaven and earth than yeah, yeah. than your um, concepts allow you to believe. Also, relevantly, it's not the size of the boat; it's the motion of the ocean. <laughs> it's the thickness of the reality. <laughs> the thickness of reality. <laughs> uh, also, Shakespeare. I think. I think uh, you have a mystical side too. I've always thought. Yeah, that. maybe. It's just yeah, um, and it's a, the tragedy of your. <laughs> like the, experience that those two things are always fighting each other. Well, also that I'm not willing to take hallucinogens to get to the pure experience. So I'm definitely going to need a blow to the head, <laughs> a semi coma. <laughs> yeah, it's so much more fun to just do the mushrooms. <laughs> All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.